I'm your host, Demetria Wack. And I'm your host, Michael Wiafe. Today on PolicyWise. So today we'll be talking about an ongoing public health crisis. Over 26% of all Americans over the age of 18 meet the criteria for having a mental illness. By 2029, mental illness is predicted to become the leading cause of disease worldwide. Strikingly, 1 million people commit suicide every year and 10 to 20 million attempt it. And these attempts disproportionately affect youth, older adults, veterans, and those of the LGBTQ community. Among young people, Native Indigenous youth have the highest rate of suicide of any ethnic or cultural group in the United States, and suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth from 10 to 24 years of age. Suicide risk has warranted response from the state and local communities to address the causes of suicide, including research and development of a statewide strategic plan on suicide prevention. The state has further sought to address the causes of suicide through specific suicide prevention policies and programs. Additionally, young leaders are advocating for increasing resources and awareness to into the issue. Today, we'll be talking about the creation of the State Office of Suicide Prevention within the Office of Public Health, in addition to the California Strategic Plan for Suicide Prevention. With us, we have Josh Chan and Ashley Mills. Josh is a first-year student at UC Santa Barbara who's been a mental health advocate since high school. He became passionate about the cause after supporting his close friends who dealt with depression and anxiety. As Marin County Youth Commissioner, he organized the county's first mental health summit at the College of Marin and partnered with the National Alliance on Mental Illness to raise awareness for this issue, including speaking at the annual NAMI Walk, in his high school, he started a mental health awareness club, successfully advocated for the continued funding of on-campus therapists, and hosted a student-led panel about healthy ways to deal with stress. Josh, thank you for joining us. And would you mind telling us why this is a really important issue for you? Thank you so much. Um, so this issue has been really important for me. And this interest really started around middle school when I was living in Chicago. So back there, I had friends with difficult family situations, such as divorced parents, people close to them experiencing drug and alcohol abuse, anxiety from school, and more. So when I was in eighth grade, I moved to the Bay Area, and I saw more of the same issues from the people around me as well. So what would happen is I had friends from Chicago and friends in my new environment that would come to me for help or just to talk about their issues, and I would have no idea what to do. So I was never really taught what to do in that situation. And though school staff was well-meaning, they're often under-equipped to handle these deep issues, which is what I found. And this kind of dilemma continued for me throughout high school. And around junior year, I ended up doing a group project about teenage depression in my county. And after doing that, I realized that the numbers far exceeded any of my expectations. It shocked me to realize how many people were dealing with problems in mental health. And I felt that this issue was rarely discussed or dealt with in the community. So I felt like I wanted to do something about it. So from then on, I went to advocate for mental health awareness through various platforms in my school and through the broader community. Well, thank you, Josh. And you know, uh, we, Demi and I, uh, forgot to mention, but we are big fans of of students taking uh, matters into their own hands, and we come from a background of student leadership, so it's just incredible to know that you were able to do that for your community and are continuing your work in that way. Thank you. Great. Um, so let's go to Ashley. Ashley is a senior researcher at the California Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability Commission and the leading voice on suicide prevention. She also was an instrumental in creating the California Strategic Plan for Suicide Prevention. 
Ashley, I would love if you gave us a little bit more details about you and how you got involved in this work and why it's uh, an important issue for you. So happy to have you on. Thank you so much uh, for the invitation and so happy to be talking about this um, with all of you here today. So a little bit about my background. Um, I uh, started with the commission um, about eight years ago, but prior to my role at the commission, I did a lot of work in um, juvenile delinquency, um, gang violence prevention, um, and other types of prevention that were much more focused around violence and, and looking at violence from a public health perspective and not a criminal justice perspective. And what we found is a lot of the effective practices all had uh, mental health components to them. So whether that was um, uh, making sure that youth had uh, life skills training, um, coping skills, um, even language around how to describe what they were going through in terms of their mental health and and significant changes to their mental health, um, these were all key aspects of evidence-based practices for reducing juvenile delinquency and gang involvement and gang association. So I was really interested in in pursuing um, more background and getting more expertise um, and more work experience in mental health. And so about eight years ago, I um, moved over to the commission. And ever since then, I've been working on statewide projects, really trying to explore improving policies and practices um, in mental health. And, and so my first project was in criminal justice and mental health, looking to reduce criminal justice involvement for people that had mental health needs. Um, and that project was very intensive. Um, and it was, it was about two years. And afterwards, um, I said, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. I'm going to um, have a little bit of downtime before my next project. Well, at this time, um, the legislature and the governor's office had directed the commission to establish a new suicide prevention plan for the state of California. Our last plan was was written in 2008. So at this point, this was around 2018, um, the plan was um, somewhat outdated. It was originally intended to only be a three to five year plan. And so we were long overdue with having a new statewide uh, strategic plan for suicide prevention. So the commission was directed to lead this work. And I was kind of at the right place at the right time. I had just come off this project. Um, I was originally looking for some downtime, but um, after some discussions with colleagues and my mentors, um, I think the consensus was what would be more important than working to reduce suicide um, and prevent suicide in California. And so I said yes, and I leaned in. And so I began this very intensive um, community engagement, looking at the data, um, reviewing the research, talking with subject matter experts here in California um, nationally, internationally, and really trying to distill all the information that we had um, on the science of suicide prevention and, and try to um, compile the information in a way that would be actionable and helpful for our communities here in California so that we could all benefit from the latest um, on research and data without having to get our PhD in, in um, psychology or, or some other related field. And so that effort was about two years. And so the commission um, adopted the plan in uh, late 2019. Um, and so I'm really, I, I was really uh, honored to be in a position to lead this work um, and support the commission and, and work with survivors of loss and attempt. Um, I am a, um, a survivor of many um, loss of a lot of loved ones, both 
friends and family, um, some even while I was developing the state strategy, um, which was extremely challenging and, and frustrating. And so it was even more motivating to um, conclude that work um, and really try to turn around a product that would be um, actionable and helpful and, and would really work to save lives. Thank you so much for your work and uh, for taking the time to share with all of us today. I think that, you know, each of us involved in like higher education um, work really saw an increase of attention on mental health resources uh, during the time we were there. And it's great to hear that the state's taking like a more holistic approach to it um, and all and all your work towards it. I know when it came to mental health on on school campuses and we talked about a little bit in the intro was just the different ways that mental health impacts um, communities differently. I was wondering how the strategic plan um, like addresses addresses that issue and if there's anything specific in the strategic plan that really uh, you know helps guide that issue specifically for indigenous populations. So I think one of the core messages of the state strategic plan is really um, focused around a foundation in public health. Um, And and public health looks at these kinds of um, public health challenges, whether it's um, HIV, AIDS prevention, um, or reductions in tobacco use. Any public health problem is first going to look at how we can define the problem. So for, for our purposes, how suicidal behavior is expressed in our different communities And what we have found is that suicidal behavior is expressed differently for our um, Native American and our Indigenous populations. It's expressed differently amongst our veterans. Um, And it's expressed differently in our different communities, whether someone is using um, a firearm um, or some other method of attempting suicide. You want to first be able to describe what the problem is that you're trying to address. And then from there, you're looking at factors that increase risk. So that could be not having connection to effective mental health care. That could be having um, guns or other highly lethal methods of attempting suicide in your home. And then you want to look at protective factors. So these are factors that buffer against this risk. So that could be um, connections to effective care. That could be connections to cultural practices. That could be um, connections to community and and feeling a sense of um, belongingness. And then from there, you want to design your programs and services to address those risk factors and those protective factors. And then you want to evaluate. So if it's working, great, let's expand it. If it's not, let's go back to the drawing board and let's figure out um, maybe a different strategy or different approach. And that's what the public health approach is. Awesome, Ashley. Thank you for, for outlining that for us. Josh, I have to know um, from your perspective and within your work and experience, how do some of these play out um, kind of on the ground with young people? Yeah, so one of the main things throughout all the different projects I worked on in mental health is just having an awareness for these kinds of issues within our community and also not also making sure that people know that they're not alone. Um, one of the projects that I'm most proud of is organizing the mental health summit at the College of Marin. And I work with other teenagers to organize this. I work with community leaders to get everything set up. We end up having 150 people show up to listen to speakers, both people who are young and telling their own stories with mental health. And even we had mental health professionals on to talk 
about some of the science behind it, some of the numbers and stats so that people understand how big of an issue it is. Showing more of an awareness towards it will bring more empathy towards the community and hopefully produce more change at the policy level, like what Ashley's doing and even just in a smaller scale within schools and smaller communities. I, you know, I think, um, especially in, in more recent times, uh, young people are being affected by this in, you know, a much different way because of the pandemic and being stuck at home, et cetera, et cetera. I, um, actually didn't plan on sharing this, but, uh, I had a friend, um, just a few months ago, I, I was really close. Um, not really close. We were really close at a point. Uh, one of those friends that you just kind of drift away as we uh, moved off into different lives, I guess. And, um, last we talked was June. And then I, in November, I ran into like a, a, a mutual friend uh, of them. And I was like, oh yeah, how they're doing? They're like, oh, you haven't heard? And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And they shared the news that they, they're no longer with us. And that was kind of a moment where, you know, it's, it's always a very serious topic, but it is, I think it hits differently when it's someone you know. And so I guess uh, my follow-up question to that is, is how do you, you know, uh, uh, not only for us in this conversation, but also for the listeners, like, how, how do you, how do you deal with this? What, what is, you know, how, how, what do I do in my, in my life to make sure that, you know, I'm being as supportive as possible. And, and Josh, you brought up the really important point of making sure that people don't feel alone. I am so sorry for your loss. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I don't, you know, I think that no matter what your connection was with a person, when you um, lose someone that you knew very well, or maybe not not that well, it's still very um, impactful. Um, and and I think it's a really great invitation to have these kinds of conversations. So thank you for being brave and and um, sharing with us today. Um, I think we probably all have some experience, um, whether we knew somebody or or currently know someone that's struggling. Um, and and that's really another central message of the state suicide prevention plan, which is that we all have a role in preventing suicide. You know, I think about some of the parallels that we currently have with the, the COVID-19 pandemic and how we as a community really need to work together to reduce risk. So that could be all of us wearing masks, staying home, socially um, uh, distancing. We can apply those same kinds of principles to suicide um, prevention. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of steps and, and a couple of steps for the, for the listeners. Asking somebody if they're thinking about suicide does not increase suicide risk. What it does is it, it creates an opportunity for someone to step into a space and experience and, and share probably a very significant um, emotional suffering that they're going through. And oftentimes people who are going through this profound emotional suffering they don't feel like they can share. And when you ask somebody directly, are you thinking about suicide? Do you feel like you don't have any reason to live? You're creating this space for someone to share and, and really unburden um, what they're going through, um, which is probably some really profound emotional pain. And oftentimes people just need this space to feel like they can be heard and that the, you, will, you won't be judgmental or, or you'll be empathetic. Um, and and just do active listening. It sounds like you're going through a lot. I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, let me know how I can support you. These kinds of active listening can just, it's really um, powerful. It's low cost. It's high impact. It's something we can all do. 
It's not something that you need a um, professional degree in counseling or, or anything like that to do to support someone. All you need to do is just listen. And then if you need additional support or if the person at risk needs additional support, there's always the free um, 1-800-LIFELINE number. You can call, you can text, you can chat. And these are trained professionals that can help you and help the person at risk go through what will be needed in order to support that person, whatever it may be. And it's, it's confidential, it's collaborative, it's transparent, and it's all about finding ways to support somebody that might be at risk. And then follow up with them afterwards. Send them a text message. How are you doing? Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I really appreciated you being so open and honest. Let's go for coffee. Let's go for a walk. These are really important steps that we can all take to support somebody. Ashley, like a lot of what you talked about has like this kind of community approach to it. Uh, and oftentimes when it comes to like a political facilitation of community approaches, uh, there does, doesn't seem to be like a lot of like policy that really guides that. Um, but I think that mental health might be like a really good opportunity to explore the possibility of, you know, creating spaces for uh, like more like social interaction. Um, I was wondering if there like if there is any specific policies going on that specifically look at yeah facilitating human connection. I know um, I forget where it was, but there was like this. Basically, what it, they did was they they trained like the grandmothers of a certain area to go sit on benches and talk to the local community, and that showed to have like a profound effect on mental health over like any of the other interventions that they've done. So I just didn't know if there was any like kind of creative policy approaches to help facilitate maybe like a, like, yeah, the human interaction, human connection that seems to be at the core of, of mental health. And uh, Josh, if, if you have any insights on, on how you think, you know, some of those policies might be helpful, that would be great. Yeah, it's a, that's a difficult, um, it, it's a difficult thing to, um, uh, legislate <laughs> or put within policy. I'll give you an example. And then I'll give you an example of something that I think is really, um, that is current. Uh, it's currently a policy bill and, and I'll, I'm going to have to look up what bill number it is. I apologize. Um, but um, I'll, I'll give you an example. So that could be very effective for some groups. Um, there are other groups, for example, that benefit from um, having connections with their with their faith based communities. So this could be um, religious um, cultural practices that bring communities together, that have food festivals. You know, orienting the community around um, traditional um, foods that are used in spiritual practice. Um, there are a lot of examples where that can be really beneficial to someone and connect people in a way that is um, supportive. There are other examples where um, I'll give it like, for example, somebody who um, may identify as LGBTQ and, and they actually get, um, they, they potentially get uh, rejecting messages from their spiritual or their faith-based communities. And so those kinds of connectedness, um, you know, connection promoting activities, they, they actually can create harm for somebody that feels rejected by those practices and by that community. So it's really difficult. And that's why I, I go back to understanding what your problem is, um, you know, if your problem is around, uh, you know, LGBTQ um, youth in your community that are attempting suicide at, at higher rates, you want to build 
responsive strategies around the needs of that community. And that could be very different than maybe African-American community members in, you know, Oakland area, something like that. So it's really important to, to get a better understanding of how suicidal behavior is being expressed in your particular community and then building strategies around those needs. But I will give you an example. Um, There is a bill now that uh, is um, trying to build in more mental health education in our schools. I think that this is fantastic. Even on a surface level, I think back when I was growing up and going through school, even if I wanted to reach out to somebody to talk to somebody about what I was going through, I didn't have the language for how to describe what I was feeling and, and how things were changing. And I, I didn't even, I didn't have, even have the language. So I think just the literacy and just promoting awareness around mental health and how we can have shared language around mental health is so powerful. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing what you brought up about like religious communities and um, just like the different communities that each of us are involved in. I think you know, even like a school club or like the different ways that those, those can like kind of fill that, that community need. Um, I wonder for youth, you know, who might be not so like franchised with, um, you know, either school groups or uh, with faith-based, is there any like particular uh, like group or audience that they can go to in order to like gain that social interaction? And Josh, I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah. So, um, I just wanted to touch on the point that Ashley brought up uh, when she was talking with how to bring up mental ed- mental health education in schools. And I think that would be a really effective focus to look at in the future because in the work that I was doing, one thing that I noticed was there are a lot of well-meaning people out there that just don't know how to help. And I think that providing those resources to maybe show this person who's really well-meaning how to talk to their friend, how to listen to their friend who's struggling. And by doing that, you're, you're helping the broader community by giving the people who want to help the resources they need to do that work. And one, one of the projects that we worked on in the mental health awareness club at my school was we set up this, this, student panel about healthy ways to deal with stress in school and in life. So we invited three classrooms over into the library. We had like 80 students watch and listen to these four students from our club, um, all different age ranges. Um, we, we have representation from like from different, gen- different genders, different um, races, and we're just talking about what their unique experiences are like in high school and how they dealt with the stress and like maybe maybe there were some unhealthy ways they did it before but they learned how to do it in more healthy ways and just just sharing those stories um was really powerful and i had i'd walked into the event thinking oh it's going to be one of those things that maybe some of the students are gonna you know get bored of it and not really listen but while i was while i was while I was there, I saw that each and every student was really captivated and they were really, really listening to these stories from their fellow students. And then after that event was done, we talked, we asked them, okay, what do you think about the event? Would you go to something like this again? And the overwhelming response was that this is great because a lot of them had their own situations of 
friends who didn't really know how to deal with the stress very well. And now they have these ideas to share to the people they care about. And we, we were, we had planned to do multiple of these events, but the pandemic actually really started hitting like right after our first one. So I'm glad we got the first one out, but just thinking about how well that first event went, it's something that I would hope to see replicated in the future, that kind of educational event, helping people help others. That sounds like a, like a, a great idea for an event. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping people are getting ideas by listening to this. So uh, Demi did mention uh, a while back that, you know, we were in student leadership. It was kind of, a, a, at least in my view, kind of like a budding new topic that people would, would finally start to talk about. And, um, you know, mental health challenges on, on college campuses. And so there was a bill that we advocated for back in the day. Um, and I think it was the same one that you mentioned, Ashley, that would kind of change the ratios um, or lower the ratio of uh, uh, the amount of students for every counselor that's held on a college campus. Um, so as we were discussing here, I was looking up some of the data. And it, so this, this bill passed in 2018, it looks like. Um, and it looks like uh, the ratios are going down steadily every few years. Um, it looks like they're they're hiring another counselor for every 300 students or so on average within the CSU and UC systems. Um, hopefully this starts to address the issue because, um, you know, I remember uh, telling administrators that students would wait two, three, four weeks for an appointment. Um, and and that, you know, sometimes when you make the appointment, it's it's kind of a more dire situation and that you need to speak to someone soon. Um, so I, I guess uh, uh, on those kind of lines, uh, Ashley, would you mind kind of outlining to us um, some of the main points from the strategic report um, and, and, kind of, and also what impact that might have on young people or, or the impact that it's looking to have? Sure. Thank you. And um, I just wanted to, I just looked it up. It's Senate Bill um, 224, um, which is a um, Portantino bill. And it was just introduced um, in January. And so it's all about um, mental health education in our schools. Um, so uh, yeah, that looks like it's um, in the Committee on Education now. Um, so I've, I've been trying to pepper a little bit throughout the conversation. Um, some of the main takeaways, um, you know, everyone has a role in suicide prevention. Um, there's differences in the kinds of um, suicidal behavior that is being expressed in California. Um, we, we interestingly do um, match pretty well um, in terms of um, national trends. Um, so we see much greater rates of death by suicide amongst older white males um, who die by firearm. Um, we see a lot more um, suicide attempts by um, young Latinas, um, very similar to national trends. Um, the interesting thing about California is we are, um, if you look at us on a map um, and you look at all of the um, states and their different suicide rates, um, the west side of the country is, is predominant, has predominantly high rates, except for California. Um, and so we have um, a, a fairly low, um, comparatively low suicide rate. And this could be for a couple of different reasons. Um, it could be um, our gun control policies. So we have um, stricter gun control um, and, and we have seen an increase since the pandemic in the number of um, households that have 
firearms, um, however. Um, but typically that's been cited as one of the reasons why we have a lower suicide rate. Um, and we also have uh, more access to um, health care and uh, behavioral health care, which is a really strong um, uh, protective factor that can help support people once they have connections to um, uh, uh, mental health and health and health care. And that's because suicide um, often, you know, if not maybe 90% of all suicides occur within the context of a mental health need particularly around depression and anxiety. And I think the really hopeful message in suicide prevention is that there are effective treatments. There are effective treatments, there's effective services, there's effective supports um, that people can access in order to um, meet their mental health needs in a way that reduces suicide risk, reduces the desire to die, reduces thoughts of suicide. Um, and these are really important factors and it's important for our communities to have equitable access to effective mental health care, to linguistically appropriate care, to culturally appropriate care, and, and providers that are trained not only in these mental health interventions, but also in suicide prevention. So there is... Um, there's kind of this range of suicidal behavior. So there, there are, you know, people that just experience um, thoughts of suicide. There are people that um, attempt and there are people that go on to die by suicide. And so the, the strategy is really developed around um, this comprehensive uh, um, approaches to a variety of risk. So that could be reducing um, risk in the broad population um, so that's increasing access to services, supports, connectedness, um, increasing um, training around coping skills, um, this idea around mental health literacy and giving particularly youth um, the tools in order to share what they're going through, the language to share what they're going through. Um, and then taking it a little bit step further, there's also um, directives around screening for suicide risk. So once somebody, um, maybe a student in a school, um, there's a change in behavior, um, a, a teacher notices that there's something going on, they can um, sit down, they can talk with a student, and they can administer um, a suicide screening. And the suicide screening is really focused around um, trying to assess the duration of suicidal thought. Um, the pervasiveness of these thoughts. Um, do they come and go? Are they ongoing? Are they unmanageable? This is where we see increased risk for suicide. And so these tools can help educators um, identify suicide risk when it becomes um, elevated in students. And using that tool, um, you can triage or you can connect students into an appropriate level of care. So you want to make sure that you're connecting somebody who is at a particular level of risk to the appropriate level of service. You never want to put somebody that is at low risk into an intensive level of service that can increase risk. And then once you've connected that student to um, an appropriate level of care, Again, follow up. What happened? Was it effective? Did, do, do we need more? Do we need less? Um, you know, how can the parents become involved to support the needs of the, the student youth? How can the friends become involved to support the, the student? Um, and so you can use this assessment process to decide or to try to determine somebody's level of risk so you can connect them with appropriate resources. Um, and then from there, there are people that need um, additional level of, of care. And so there are um, best practices in assessing suicide risk. So what is increasing risk? What is buffering against risk? 
um, coming up with a safety plan, which is all about um, who can I reach out to when um, my thoughts of suicide become unmanageable, um, they um, become pervasive, they're ongoing, they're intense. Um, who can I reach out to? What can I do um, so I can um, change the directory of the trajectory of these thoughts um, that are coming in? Um, and so there's ways that you can manage um, suicide risk and suicide thoughts so that they don't get so unmanageable and out of control, out of a person's control. And sometimes people can do this um, on their own. Um, people who experience suicide risk are incredibly resourceful and and, and um, this, this process can be really empowering, but it's also this acknowledgement that sometimes your risk just becomes unmanageable and it's okay to reach out to trusted adults and providers and caregivers to provide additional support to, to keep you safe. Um, suicide risk, uh, suicide crises are um, transient. They come, they go. They're very powerful when they're here, but then they go and they, um, they tend to taper off. Um, and so that's when you can start to put these plans um, in place so that the next time um, suicide becomes suicide risk becomes elevated, you know what to do. You have a plan in place. Your caregivers, your providers, and your friends and your family know what to do to keep you safe. So it's a very collaborative, transparent process. Um, and it's been very effective in, in a lot of our um, evidence-based um, studies. And then finally, there are people that are at most risk for suicide, and those are people who have had prior suicide attempts. Um, these are often people that come into contact with our hospitals, and so they receive care for their injuries. Um, and oftentimes, they may be just discharged um, with little follow-up, little aftercare. Um, maybe they receive a referral, but they you know, can't get to their appointment for whatever reason. And so sometimes these people become um, lost. Um, they, they fall through the cracks of the system. And so there's additional um, information in the plan for providing um, uniform, consistent, standardized um, follow-up procedures for people that are discharged after receiving suicide-related services in our healthcare system. It's so great to hear how comprehensive this plan is. Um, and I'm really interested to see, you know, not just what happens when this is implemented, but all the things that will spiral after the fact. And hopefully just draw more and more attention to mental health. Um, Josh, I do have a question for you. If you were in like a policymaker right now, you're in a, not, you are a policymaker because you're a policy influencer. But if you were, you know, in the driving seat um, and you could create a policy right now uh, to address mental health, what, what, like, what would that look like? Like, what would be like an intervention that you would implement? Hmm. So I would think about, putting that focus onto mental health education. Um, I really like how Ashley mentioned in this plan, there is a focus on early inter intervention. And I think that in addition to that, there should be more and more research done about how to help the issue before it's too late. Because that that's something that I had been worried about for a long time with my friends and something that I see just within the community. If there's just more research and education about just how to help. If you're in that situation where you know there's a friend that's struggling, it would be really helpful to have a set of tools to guide you in 
how to listen to them, what to do to reach out, maybe where to guide them, like which resources to send them to. During my work here in in my county, there actually were a lot more resources than I thought there were. But it took me doing like hours of research to find these places to even realize that they existed in the first place. So if I were helping out a friend, I wouldn't want them to spend too much time looking for that place just to find it. So having these existing services be more accessible and, and have people just know about these places so that if they see someone in their community and their family and their friend within their friend group struggling, they know exactly where to send them to, what is appropriate for the level of need. Like Ashley was saying, you want to match the, you want to, you want to match the situation with the, the correct resource. So having that knowledge of the resource would be really effective in helping the people who need it the most. Thanks, Josh. And, and I think, um, you know, too often people who uh, provide these resources just kind of put them into the world and then forget that you have to also market it um, and that it's not really much of a helpful resource if nobody knows it exists. And for some reason, some of the best resources that I've seen being created um, are some of the most well-kept secrets. <laughs> and so I think we, we need to find a better way to, to kind of market that information. Uh, this is kind of the last question before we start to conclude. Um, and, and dare I ask uh, the both of you, what are opponents saying? Do you have opponents in this work? Um, how do you respond to them? What does it sound like? What does it look like? Can you kind of tell us kind of the opposition that you might you might face in your advocacy and in your work? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I'm trying to think about um, kind of the different perspectives that we have in, in suicide prevention. And I think that there's still some of this tension um, around, um, you know, we, we, you, you'll kind of hear the, the messaging that suicide is preventable. Um, and I think that, you know, coming from a, a, um, a loss survivor perspective, that can be really shaming. Um, and so um, oftentimes, you know, in, in our state's plan, we were really careful about our language, um, not to be stigmatizing, not to be um, shaming, but to really communicate that lives can be saved from suicide. Um, you know, we, we can do um, everything that we possibly can to support someone. Um, and, and we just, we have to, you know, give ourselves a lot of grace and, and just be willing to um, be compassionate and to under, be understanding, to reduce stigma as much as possible, both for mental health and um, people that might be experiencing suicide risk. So this is having those safe conversations with your friends and family, um, making, um, you know, making sure that people know that, that you're, a, you're a person that is empathetic and compassionate. And, um, you know, I, I think that that awareness is you know, it sounds simple, but it's it's really difficult. There's a, a lot of misunderstandings around suicide and suicide prevention, um, and so you know, it's I don't know that there's necessarily an opposition, but I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, maybe um, different stakeholders that have different uh, priority areas for for where they want to put you know very scarce resources. I wish we had more resources for suicide prevention. You know, there's, uh, there's so many other public health crises that are very well 
funded. Um, and so we're, we're always in this, um, this uh, uh, resource scarcity kind of environment. So I think that that, um, that, that tips stakeholders into this, this environment of having to like vie for, for these scarce resources um, and put the money where they think is going to be most effective. And, and the truth of the matter is you really need to have this comprehensive, um, you know, resources and, and, um, and, you know, along the continuum. Um, And so, you know, we're all right. (laughs) Um, But, but when we can, you know, we just need to to work together and, and to, to work towards our common goal of preventing suicide. Thanks, Ashley. Josh, do you have any opponents? I think the one thing that comes to mind, Ashley mentioned it a bit, but it's really just the stigma of the topic and maybe some misinformation um, within the mental, just thinking about mental health. Um, So, I mean, the truth is it's tough to talk about even when it is important. And just, I think that alone has been the main obstacle with all the work that I've been doing, it's just maybe showing people that there are ways to support your friends or are ways to, to help people who need it the most. And just usually what happens is after they get that understanding, then people are more on board with the different changes that we need to make in, within our community. Great, thank you. Um, and for our final question, we're so happy to have both of you on um, because uh, we're hoping, you know, young people are listening as well as policy professionals. What would your message be uh, to both parties um, about what they can do to advance suicide prevention? And maybe we can start off with Josh. Yeah, so I love this question. And one thing that I would say is, that I actually I learned pretty recently is don't just think about mental health when it's at its worst. You can think about mental health when it's relatively good too. We could think about ways to make yourself content, fulfilled, happy. You could think about what's important in your life, how to uplift the people you care about. And as for policy, I, th- I do think there, again, there could be a focus on that early prevention and how do we ensure that these mental health issues don't get worse to the extent that it's too late? And when we have this vocabulary and this better understanding of mental health as a whole, not just when it's bad, but also when it's good, then I feel like a lot of these issues could be better addressed. Thank you. Uh, Ashley? Yeah, the only other um, the only other point I would add is to participate in your local process. So there is a lot of activity happening in um, across California in our communities around um, suicide prevention and mental health awareness, and and you know youth really need to be at the table. Um, participate in the process, advocate for more um, focus around youth, youth mental health, youth suicide prevention, participate in your school's, um, you know, uh, process for developing policies. Every um, school in California is required to have a suicide prevention policy. Hold your schools accountable, hold your governments accountable, and that includes me, you know, hold me accountable, um, but participate in the process so much of um, suicide is still hidden. It's not talked about. There's incredible stigma. 
um, as, as much as you're feeling comfortable, know that you have incredible influence to be an advocate for people that are incredibly vulnerable and who might not be able to um, step into these kinds of spaces because of their own mental health needs. And we absolutely want to protect you know, your, your mental health, your well-being. And so participate as much as you um, find beneficial, but just know that your voice is incredibly important and we need to hear it. Ashley, I'm so glad um, that you mentioned that, and, and Josh, you as well. Uh, we are, we at PolicyWise are definitely here for young people to get engaged in their local process. So um, I, I definitely think that that is that is kind of a, a very strong takeaway, and and ones that you know, uh, I think that this entire conversation um, was one that was much needed, especially during these times. I think it's something that we don't talk about enough, and just want to thank you both for joining us and. Um, sharing with us your thoughts and insights and, and hopefully our, uh, and actually not not hopefully I know that our listeners will enjoy it um, and, and that it's going to it's going to brighten some folks days um, with some very useful information so again thank you both thank you thank you so much thanks for joining us on another episode of policy wise we are your hosts Demetria and Michael Michael and I would love to hear from you What topics would you like to hear about and who would you like to hear from? Check the episode description for a link to our survey. Thanks. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Youth Leadership Institute makes sure young people are at the decision-making tables across California. And California Forward leads a statewide movement, bringing people together across communities, regions, and interests to improve government and ensure that the economy works for everyone. Jarrett Ramones produced this episode. Social media graphics created by Abby Peel. And the music was sourced from artlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out yli.org. And be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion here on PolicyWise.